this is from 78 and uh you're listening to an interview or you're about to listen to an interview that i did with somebody whose handle is french horn hero uh this is a really long interview i sat down with french horn hero on a saturday afternoon and uh I don't think that either one of us really planned for the interview to go as long as it did, but we enjoyed talking to one another. And as a result, we have like a 90-minute a interview. Now, I, I realize that probably if you're listening to this podcast, you're listening to it on the go, you're in your car, maybe you're on a treadmill, running some miles, maybe you're running outside. I don't know. You're, you're probably uh, a busy person doing things that busy people do. And I decided that rather than trying to just kind of uh, release an episode that was the interview in its entirety, that what I would do is I would break it up into two parts. And what you're about to hear is the first of those two parts of this interview. Now, I'm I'm learning how to do this interview thing as I go along here. Uh, you know, I, I've done podcasts in the past, but most of the podcasts that I've done have just been me talking into a microphone. They haven't been me sitting down with another person who also has a microphone and having a conversation. Uh, as a result, I would say that my interviewing skills are not the sharpest. They're not the dullest either, but they're definitely not the sharpest. And I'm kind of trying to figure out how to do good interviews by doing them. Uh, I'm I'm just giving this a shot and kind of hoping for the best here. So uh, the first half of this interview, I, I think, is characterized more by me asking questions and French Horn Hero kind of giving answers. I think the second half of the interview, which you're going to hear later on, that's uh, I, something happened in the conversation. I think it sort of shifted a little bit and we became maybe more like conversational equals. I think he would talk, I would talk, we'd go back and forth. I might've even talked a little bit more in the second half when I, I actually think about it. Um, I don't want to say that for some reason. I'm embarrassed that I talked more when I was interviewing somebody, that seems like it's bad, but I might have done that. So, you know, we'll see. The only way to find out is to, to you know, listen to the next episode of From 78, which will be coming shortly. However, uh, if you are interested in hearing the entire interview, uncut, unedited, you can do that by going to the Patreon page for From 78. Uh, yes, I, I did create one of those things. Um, you can support the podcast for as little as $1 a month, and then you can also support it for, I think, the maximum I set was like $25 a month. And uh, there's a bunch of tiers in between that. Anybody who supports the show at any level gets access to all of the extras. The reason I'm doing that is, you know, I, I think that the people who are listening to this probably come from a variety of different backgrounds. Some of you might have a disposable income and you might not mind supporting me with that, uh, I can't talk, with that disposable income. And others of you, I don't know, you might be, you know, like a, a college student who really just doesn't have a lot of money or you might be somebody who has a lot of bills because you do, because life happens. And you just want to be able to, to offer a little bit of support. So if you support the show for, like I said, as little as $1, you get access to everything that, Anybody who supports the show at any level gets, right? It's a totally egalitarian model. We'll see how that works. I have a goal right now. My goal is to try to get 10 people to support the show at some level. If I can do that, I feel like I'm off to a good start, and then I'll set some new goal. But that's kind of where it's at right now. So again, if you are interested in hearing the entire interview with French Horn Hero, uncut, unproduced, unedited, uh, the whole 90 minutes or so of it, you can do that right now by going to patreon.com slash from 78. That's F-R-O-M, number seven, number eight. And of course, there is a link in the show notes at from 78, dot com. So without further ado, let's get into the first part of this two-part interview with French Horn Hero.
So this is from 78, and uh, I am from 78, and I'm sitting here today with French Horn, he- French Horn Hero. You got it. All right. Like Guitar Hero, but French Horn. Wonderful. So we're going to, uh, this is the first episode, you're the first person who I'm interviewing for this podcast, so this is me trying out this series of questions. I'm not sure how it's going to work or fail. We'll figure that out together, I guess. So I know what your handle is. Um, the first question I want to ask you then is what year were you born in? 1994. Wow. Okay. 1994. So how old are you now? 26. Wait. Right. Nope. 25. Can't do math. <laughs> All right. So you're, you're 25. I'm 41. There's a pretty decent gap between the two of us. Um, so as we, we kind of go through these, uh, one of the things that I'm hoping will happen is I'll ask you questions. You'll think about them. You'll answer them. And then you can ask questions back too. By the way, you know, I kind of I'm hoping that it will take more of a conversational cool. tone or something like that. So, question number one: What is the first major event that you can remember living through? Nine eleven comes to mind. Um, I was still pretty young, I guess. I would have been almost seven at that point. Um, nothing else prior to that immediately comes to mind. I definitely remember nine eleven, though. I was in first grade maybe kindergarten um i remember we weren't allowed to watch it on tv but somebody in the teacher's lounge um had seen the news and then they made an announcement and everybody was just sent home we weren't exactly sure why until um well i wasn't sure why until i got home um i remember my mom being extremely upset and not fully understanding why until i saw it on the television Okay, so so you were a, a little kid, you yeah. know, uh, old enough that you can remember the event, right? It's mm-hmm. not like that that time in our lives, I guess, where we sort of have memories, but we're not mm-hmm. sure if there are memories or stories that people have told us. You really remember it. Yeah, and the only reason it's fuzzy is, like I said, at my school, they just didn't say anything about it, about what was going on. Um, so I didn't know any of the details until much later in the day. So that kind of leads into the, the next question I want to ask. So you, you lived through this event. How do you think that living through that in the way that you did, how did that affect you? Uh, that's a good question. I've never really, really thought about it. Um, I'd like to think that it hasn't. I'd like to think that maybe I'm... Hold on. That's not the way that I want to answer this question. I'd rather say, it like, I think a lot of people took it as an excuse, even people that were my age, maybe a little bit older, maybe a little bit younger, as an excuse to be more hateful, I guess. And I'd like to think that that didn't happen for me. Um, so maybe maybe the way that it has affected me is having the opposite effect that it had for some other people. It made me feel like I had to try more to be tolerant of other people than to try less and be more hateful, if that makes sense. I don't know if it does. <laughs> I think so. I mean, you know, having lived through that at a, in a very different time period right so when 9-11 happened that morning that what i did is um i got in my car uh it was a i think a dodge shadow uh i'm pretty sure that's what it was and i drove from the town i was living in to the town that i went to school in. i was a commuter student and so i i drove there and i never like listened to the radio as i was driving in i listened to music so i I listened to whatever Hmm. cd i wanted to listen to on my way in and you know that was that and i got to school and i could tell that something was up right like people and and i i mean it's weird like we probably don't need to say this but just in case right this is this is the time before people had the internet in their pocket Mm -hmm. right um i knew a lot of people at that that moment who didn't have cell phones they didn't have them right they that was not just a part of their life uh, so there wasn't this constant barrage of information coming mm-hmm. into your your pocket telling you what was going on in the world. But people were, were being like, did you hear, did you hear, did you hear? Uh, a plane, a plane. And in my mind's eye, I can remember uh, going like, oh, and I'm, I'm imagining like a small like Cessna, single prop plane crashing into the World Trade Center. That That's the image that's in my mind. Right. And I'm I'm thinking that I'll hear more about this, you know, later, of, of course. But I um, I don't like imagine the event that really went down, right? And then you know, classes are getting canceled. Everybody's saying like, "Oh my god, oh my god," uh, all that. And then, you know, I I called my dad actually, 
And I was like, what is going on? And I remember he said, we're under attack. And I didn't know what to make of that, right? Like, right. That, that was his thing. Like, what, what do you mean? Where, who, what? I, I don't understand. And he kind of tried to explain it to me at, at that time. And uh, I was like, okay, I, two, like, passenger planes have crashed into these buildings. Uh, this is actually going on. This is, the, and the thing is, like, I'd imagine that happening, right? Like, um, that that was the kind of stuff that that I guess like existed in my mind. Like planes, cra- we live in Chicago or near mm-hmm. Chicago, mm-hmm. so it's like I imagine what if what if a plane crashed into right. you know what was then the Sears Tower, and stuff. Here it's actually happening, and I can remember it just being this um, surreal thing. You know what I mean? Like it it, it was uh, this is the kind of stuff that you see in movies. You don't you don't actually live through it, right? Yeah, I don't know. It was it was the the just the weirdest thing to to then actually see. But you were you're talking about that. Um, I remember the days after nine eleven. I remember you know people had opinions about what the appropriate response to this would be. Here's what air quotes we I guess meaning <laughs> like the people of America. Yeah. Regardless of you know what kind of person they are or whatever, what we need to do. And, you know, there was this idea that it's like find the people responsible and just really give them as much punishment as is humanly possible. Right. And I, I remember this. I got into an argument with my mom about this. I was talking with her in the days afterward. And I had said something to the to the effect of, you know, going and dropping bombs on people is not going to, in my mind, and I thought that this then, and I, I still think it now, I don't think that's going to help. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I remember... My mom uh, being like, what, what do you mean? Like, she was, she was confused by my response. We had a conversation about it uh, and, and stuff. But at first, her thing was like, you, you can't just, like, seriously be suggesting that we just let this be, mm-hmm. that, that there's not some kind of, like, retaliation. And I'm like, I am actually suggesting that there isn't a retaliation. I don't know, so that's, that's kind of what comes to mind when I listen to you, yeah, you talk about you, your reaction. When you say that, I think of a, a book that I recently read by Brian Stevenson. Um, the the title of the book is escaping me right now, but uh, I remember there's a really powerful quote in there. Uh, so Brian Stevenson is a, a lawyer, and specifically he works with people that have been condemned to death um, in Alabama, if I'm remembering right. And in the book, he writes something. I I could be paraphrasing. I could be exact quoting. I'm not exactly sure. He says the question is not whether the offender deserves to die, but whether we deserve to kill them. And it, that's just that it came to mind while you're we talking about the idea of retaliating against people, not not even the people who actually did it, but the country where the people who did it came from. And I don't know. I, th- I think my thoughts are a little a little bit scattered. But that that quote came to mind, and I I think it's a really powerful idea. And if I had read the book back then in 2001 when I was a kid. I feel like it would have encapsulated thoughts that I couldn't have articulated when I was that young. Do you do you remember if other kids your age, you know, people who were going through this, and you know, they were similar to you? They were they were your peer group at the time. How how were they um, angry? Were they you know saying kind of like beating the drums of war? Were they would they just not know what to do? Like how how did people respond to that at that time? If you're you know it, how, you, how you were really young, six yeah. or so. I, yeah, I, I remember it pretty pretty well that time. It was actually kind of strange considering the area that I'm from is predominantly like middle class and mostly white. The neighborhood that I lived in at the time was extraordinarily diverse compared to that. And I specifically remember living across the street from a family who had immigrated from Switzerland. And um, the general pattern for the kids in the neighborhood was to sort of reflect the attitudes of their parents. They didn't know exactly what to make of the whole situation. So I specifically remember this family from Switzerland um, being extremely passive compared to other people that I lived around. Um, so that that struck me as a little bit strange. I the Not because of the fact that it was strange to me, but because a lot of the people that I lived around thought the exact opposite, um, that they were, to put it your way, beating the drums of war, looking for bombing other people, looking for retaliation. Um, 
So I, yeah, I, I remember it that way. But I don't think any of the kids that I lived around had fully formed their own opinions. Um, I think they were reacting to what their parents thought and said. Mm-hmm. It, it's weird. I can also remember, uh, you know, my, my college job when I was in college was working in a call center. And so other people who were also working in the call center, uh, as time went on, eventually uh, the Iraq war kind of came onto the horizon. And I remember being the only person in a, a pretty large group of people who was saying attacking this this country is a bad idea. There's a lot of people who are like, no, it's a great idea. And it's funny, I mean, now, today, I think that the predominant idea is that, you know, this kind of like war without end has been going on for a really long time. And, and it seems like a good number of people are pretty sick of it. Mm-hmm. Like they don't want it to be going on anymore. And I can remember the time when, you know, it, there hadn't been war for a while, <laughs> I guess. Um and so people were really thirsty for it, right? Mm-hmm. They really, they were like, yeah, war. And then now it, it you know, I don't know how many years this is later at this point, 19, 19 years later. Um, we, cause we, we just passed the 18th anniversary. Yeah. 18th anniversary of September so. 11th. Yeah. yeah. So, so 18 years later, uh, going on 19 years, uh, then <laughs> it, it, it's kind of strange just to reflect on that. But, um, the other thing I was going to ask you about this, then, uh, along with nine eleven, what are some other big things? They, they can be events that that you can recall, um, and then they can be big, they can be small, they can be events that probably affected a lot of people. They can be events that were very personal to you. What are some events that had a major impact on you turning into the person that you are today? Um, I guess I'll start with a personal one. Probably the the biggest, earliest personal event that I can remember. Um, was the death of my grandmother. Um, I I remember it so specifically because my dad and I found her. Um, She had committed suicide in her garage, and we hadn't heard from her in a little bit, so my dad and I went to visit. Um, Didn't find her inside, obviously, so we went to the garage and found her there instead. Um, So I haven't forgotten that one. That was a pretty big personal event that happened to me. I think it actually might have affected my dad even a lot more than it affected me. Um, so that's one that I remember really, really particularly distinctly. Um, I feel like there's a follow-up question about how that has affected me. Um, I, I can't say for certain whether that event was the precipitating factor, but I feel like I'm a pretty generally melancholy kind of guy kind of even keeled not really over the top or anything um a lot of people probably think I'm constantly sad and when I'm not I'm just okay and I I can't I can't tell for certain whether that specific event is what precipitated my personality as it manifests now but I think it probably did um and I think it probably did something similar for my dad as well. And so maybe it did it to me exactly, or maybe it did it to my dad, and then I started mirroring what he was doing. Um, in a lot of ways, I, th- I think I'm like him, and I, th- I think that was one event that really shaped him and myself. Pause the interview for just a second. This is me from 78. I'm back flying solo here. Sans French horn hero for just a moment. After this point in the interview, right after French horn hero told me about this event from his life, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what I should 
do to respond to him. I wasn't freaking out or anything like that, but I felt like that thing that you feel when you want to say something, when you want to, I don't know, offer some kind of uh, condolence, maybe comfort. I don't know exactly. I wanted to offer something, but I didn't know how to offer it through speaking. I didn't know how to do that. And in that moment, one of the things that went flashing through my mind is something that I read. It's the seventh proposition of something called the Tractatus by Wittgenstein, who is a really super interesting philosopher, mathematician type of guy. Um, Anyways, Wittgenstein said, whereof we cannot speak about, we must pass over in silence. And after French Horn Hero told me about this event with his dad and his grandmother, uh, this thing that happened to him in his life, and, and with that moment when I didn't know how to respond, I, that proposition went whipping through my mind. Now, I didn't, I didn't say anything about that proposition in the actual interview. I don't know why I made a choice not to say anything about it, but I did. I didn't say anything about it. Um, uh, I, you know, time went by. And I knew that I was going to respond to in some way. I just didn't know, know what it was that I was going to say. Um, I knew that no matter what I expressed, it was going to um, just you know feel absolutely, completely, totally inadequate. And it, it wouldn't be an adequate response for what I had just heard. But... I think that in moments like this, it's really important, even though I I couldn't speak to the event, I couldn't speak of the event, I couldn't, in my mind, respond to what had been shared with me in an adequate way, that I could speak around it. Um, I don't know if this is going to make sense, actually, outside my brain. I really hope that it does. But... um, I think what I'm trying to say here is, you know, when, when somebody tells you something about their life and it's a big deal and it, there's a lot of pain in it and you don't know how to respond, when you know that no matter what words you offer, those words, they're not going to be enough. You wish they could be enough, but you know that they're not going to be enough. Perhaps one of the ways that we might translate that, that Wittgenstein idea whereof we cannot speak about, we must pass over in silence. Maybe Maybe one of the ways we might do that is that perhaps instead of speaking about what we've just heard because we know we can't do that instead of trying that what we do instead is that we we you know just kind of like silently recognize the importance of the thing that has been shared with us and then after you have kind of However, you, you you telepathically, I guess, do that. However, you telepathically, you know, kind of am in this moment with this person who you're talking to. Uh, after that, you offer what conversation and companionship you can, knowing that that's all you can do, right? That's that's what I'm thinking, anyway. So again, I don't know if that made sense outside of my brain. I really hope that it did. Uh, So I'm going to stop talking now, and we're going to go sliding back into our interview with French Horn Hero. How old were you when that happened? It was in 2003 in the summer so I would have been nine I think I would have like four or five months before that turned nine years old are you at all familiar with uh, the the concept that Derrida came up with of hauntology I don't think so okay so um, uh, if I'm doing a bad job at explaining it just stop me so Derrida's work is really fascinating to me. He's one of those thinkers whose work has had this huge impact, I think, on, on my own thinking. Um, but when I first encountered Derrida, I tried to read of grammatology, and I failed, right? Like, it, it's this really hard thing to read. 
Um, and I probably went back and forth a couple of times and failed every single time. And then I don't know what exactly got me to do this, but I, I decided that I was going to try to read something else by Derrida. And I read The Specters of Marx, um, which is uh, it's a different book. It's not, not that bad, uh, I don't think. It's easier for me to read. It was way easier. Mm-hmm. So in that book, he starts off by talking about the Communist Manifesto. And in, in that book, Karl Marx writes, there is a specter that is haunting Europe. It is the specter of communism. Then he goes from that into a riff on uh, the ghost of Hamlet's father that shows up and kind of haunts Hamlet. And uh, he develops this idea out a lot more that there are these things that haunt people. And uh, you could call them specters, you could call them ghosts. And and what's really interesting about these things is there are things that were real at one point in time, right? And uh, they're not anymore. They've they've, uh, died. they're, They're not physically here currently. But even though they're not here, there's a presence that lingers of these things. There's, they're, they're, they're still present in the form of a ghost. They're still present in the form of a specter. And that, that ghost haunts. Do you feel uh, that in any way that, 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 that experience, um, the experience of nine 11, the experience that you described with you and your father discovering your grandmother, did those haunt? I'm not sure that nine 11 haunted me or still does. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I honestly don't know. Um, I think it does for my mom, who um, had a friend that worked at the, at the World Trade Center. So it's probably haunted her a little bit more than me. So maybe residually, if that, if that makes any sense. Um, but I would definitely say that the experience with my father has probably haunted me. Um, probably less now than it used to. But I, I still think, yeah, it definitely has. Um, I feel like you're going to ask me how how so. And frankly, I'm just, I'm not exactly sure. But the thought crosses my mind almost all the time. Um, maybe, maybe that's a little bit too exaggerated. At least once or twice a day, I'll think about that experience. And I'm not sure exactly what it's doing to me, like how it's haunting me. But I'm sure that it is. It's just I I don't know how it's manifesting now. Peter Rollins, you know, who's a, a, a theological and psychoanalytic thinker, talks about this too. He talks about um, the difference between mourning and melancholia. You know, mm-hmm. riffing on Freud a little bit, and, and I think he also knows about this this concept from Derrida. So I think that he has the impression that some ghosts, um, kind of like, are friendly ghosts in, in a sense. They they haunt you, but you enjoy. Mm-hmm. their presence right like you remember this experience you you recall it and it it makes you smile you you feel pretty good when the presence shows up and and makes itself uh felt in your life and then there are other ghosts and this would maybe be more the case with melancholia you know that show up and um they they're not you don't really look forward to that right mm-hmm. you don't you don't want these ghosts in here anymore but you can't get rid of them you know um uh, does that dichotomy help in, in kind of thinking about that description? I suppose so. I mean, there are definitely a lot of happier memories that come along with thinking about my grandmother. But, um, I mean, I was still pretty young, so trying to remember all of them has gotten harder as time has gone on. They have, Those have sort of faded a lot more starkly in comparison to the, the last day that I saw her. Um, I'm not exactly sure where else I was going to go with that. There, I had another thought, but now it's escaping me. So save me. <laughs> sure, sure. It's interesting. Those thoughts that escape you they tend to be important. I think a lot of times, right? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Um, it's, it sounds like almost like you're saying that your your grandmother maybe is not. It, it haunts you in one way, and the the experience that you had with your father that that haunts in another. Yeah, I would. Yeah, maybe that's a really good way of putting it. I think. Um. I, th- I think that's probably the case for my, for my, I'm going to go through how I think it's affected him. Prior to that event, my dad was a mostly pretty normal guy. After that event, I don't think he ever fully recovered. And the way that he tried to fill up that void or forget the event altogether or something was that he started drinking really heavily all the time. Um, so... The specific event with my father 
I remember really specifically. But then I also remember a lot of the fallout after the event as well as being extremely important and all connected back to that first um, extraordinarily important event as well, um, if that makes sense outside my head. I think it does, yeah. Um, there's uh, this concept of that Alan Badu has mm-hmm. of events, you know, right. um, a capital E event. And, and these are things that have a, a tremendous impact. It's like you can imagine your life before that, and it was one way, and then this event happens, and then after the event happens, your life is fundamentally altered in some way, shape, or form, mm-hmm. uh, and, and all that. So I, as I'm saying this out loud in this microphone right now, I'm wondering if there's a correlation between events in people's lives and hauntings in people's lives, and if so, I wonder what that correlation might be. I don't know. You don't want to dive down that rabbit hole right now? Uh, sure. I mean, we, we, I guess we could. It's a, I don't know how, how, how much will will work out here, but I guess um, I'll, I'll think about 9-11, right? So that, that, if we imagine that was an event, I imagine that it haunts a lot of people, you know, to this day. That there, There's a lot of haunting going on around that. I don't think it haunts everybody, but I, I do think it, it haunts some definitely more than, than others. I could be mistaken, but isn't the the way that airlines are set up in the United States pretty much all based around the events of 9-11? I don't remember what it was like before that. Mm-hmm. So I could be I could be wrong, but you were a, a bit older than, well, a bit. <laughs> yeah. Older than I was when that happened. So do you remember that? Oh, yeah. I remember, I mean, airline security used to be very different than, than it is today. Um, I can remember being a little kid, and um, I would go to visit my grandparents. They lived uh, pretty far, far enough away that flying was the most convenient way to get there. At that time, my parents could like walk me to the gate. You know, uh, you didn't, you could go past airport security without a ticket, and then they'd, you know, put you on a plane, and and then you could leave. And mm-hmm. then, you know, my grandparents would meet me at the gate. Um, I didn't have to walk all the way through the airport to you know, go to where they were. People were just, I mean, I. W- I guess the way that I remember it, I don't know how accurate this is, would be to say that, that no one really thought that somebody would weaponize a wear, an airplane in that mm-hmm. way, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and then afterwards, yeah, I mean, every, there, there's this fear, right? And that fear seems to be the one of the primary things that we organize the experience of flying around now. So, I don't know. Hmm. I think that's probably true. Mm-hmm. Probably. Okay, so I'm back now. It's just me from 78, again, flying solo here. You're hearing that music in the background, and it does signify something. It signifies that you have reached the end of this first part of my long interview with French Horn Hero. And uh, when you hear the second part, you'll see why I chose to cut it here. The, The conversation takes a turn at this point, and it wasn't, I don't think either myself nor French Horn Hero were you know, consciously trying to make the conversation make a turn, but it did. It was one of those things that happens in conversation. You're talking in this direction, you talk in that direction for a while, and then, you know, the conversation turns, and now you're talking in a new direction, and that's the direction that you will hear if you listen to the second part of the interview, which I will be editing and releasing shortly. However, if you can't wait... If you really want to hear where the interview went, there's a way you can do that. I have set up a Patreon page for this podcast. And on that Patreon page, I have posted an unedited interview between me and French Horn Hero. There's no interruptions from me. There's no background music. It's just the interview, and you can hear it uncut. Now, if you go to the Patreon page, which is patreon.com, slash f-r-o-m number seven number eight you can support the show for as little as a dollar you can support it for as much as 25 dollars and no matter what level you support the show at you get all of the extra stuff that i produce the reason i'm doing that is that i recognize that not every single person who listens to this is going to be the sort of person who has a whole lot of disposable income and i want you know, this college student who doesn't have a lot of money to be able to support the show and get all the same stuff that somebody who 
you know, is lucky enough to have a pretty good disposable income that they're not uh, upset to share with me or other people making podcasts through Patreon. I want them to get the same thing. I, I think that's the right move. I hope it's the right move. And we'll see if you agree. Uh, when I set this Patreon page up, there was this thing that that is like part of the creation process where the platform gives you advice on what to do. And one of the things that it said you should do is you should like email your family and your friends and you should get them to support your page so that when potential supporters go to it, they don't see that no one is supporting it because apparently that's a turnoff. Uh, I decided not to do that either. That just seemed a little weird and disingenuous to me. Uh, you know, if you go to the page and you don't want to support it, don't. Uh, if you go to the page and you see that it's a pretty, right now it's zero number of people supporting it, um, and you want to be the first, that would be cool. Go for it. Uh, but yeah, anyways, I don't know why I'm telling you this. It, I, I think I'm kind of trying to humble brag. That's what I'm pretty sure I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to be like, look at me being not manipulative and stuff. I'm so great. And that's weird, but that's what I did. So anyways, you can do that if you want to hear the whole interview right now. But if you don't and you're willing to wait, the next part of the interview is going to be posted pretty shortly. I've already started to, you know, kind of edit it and tweak the levels and do the things that you need to do to make it sound super good or sound maybe not super good, but sound good. Uh, I've already done that. And that's it. I am done talking. Thank you so much for taking the time to download and listen to this, the third episode, the first interview episode of From 78. I am From 78. And, you know, whatever you're about to go do now that you're done listening to this, I hope it offers you a ton of enjoyment. Until next time, folks, leave a stain on the silence. <laughs>